Uh, did you announce what we're talking about? I did. Are you going to tell me? <laughs> Why the Reformation matters? I, I think that's a great topic. I was excited when I was invited uh, to talk about that. Um, and um, was thinking of a psalm. Some of you would be amazed to hear. Um, uh, psalm 85 is an intriguing psalm because it, it reflects on times of great blessing that the Lord had shown his people, uh, but is written in a time when the people of God were really struggling uh, and then it looks forward to a time when they anticipate the blessing of God again. And <clears throat> in a sense, it's a great psalm for a church historian because it seems to reflect something of the ups and downs of um, life through the history of the church. Um, we always look back on times of great blessing from the Lord, of great work by the Lord amongst his people, and uh, we always hope that we will be privileged to live in such days, um, and uh, yet sometimes the people of God are called to live in difficult days, and we might be tempted to say, well, is that just an Old Testament phenomenon? After all, Israel, you know, had great blessing at the beginning of its life, and then it was disobedient, was pu punished by the Lord was brought back from the land, went through difficult days, then the Messiah came. Uh, well, there certainly is something distinctive to the life of Israel, but I don't think we can say that that is not at all reflected in the life of the church. Uh, sometimes it's just congregations that have ups and downs. Um, we can think of Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Um, we would, might have thought they didn't even have much time to get themselves in trouble. Uh, but they managed to do it rather thoroughly. Um, we can think of the letter to the Hebrews and the great concern expressed in Hebrews 3 and 4 about the decline of a whole section of Christians um, beginning to lose a proper understanding of the gospel. Uh, we can think of Paul's sharp letter to the Galatians. How quickly you have deserted. Uh, that, that has just recently really been on my mind as a striking exhortation that uh, groups that had been very faithful can seem quickly to desert from where people thought they were standing so securely. And, and we certainly remember uh, Jesus amongst the lampstands in the book of the Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, where the church is a very mixed bag. So... Um, we might have hoped that with the coming of Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit that things could run smoothly for the church, but that is not the testimony of Scripture and it's not the testimony of church history. And uh, so when we look back on the Great Reformation in the 16th century, it's one of those times in the history of the church where God seems to be doing a great work. And it's a great time of blessing and remarkable things are happening. Um, although I always remember reading uh, Calvin's commentary on Zephaniah. You've probably all read Calvin on Zephaniah. Um, uh, I don't remember much about it, but except at the beginning, he says, uh, 
Now, some people think we are living in a golden age. And he said, don't you believe it. We have plenty of troubles and woe and difficulty. And that's always an important thing to, uh, uh, to bear in mind. Uh, studying church history is a little like raising children. Once they're grown and turned out well, that's all you remember are the good times. Well, mainly all you remember. And, uh, but uh, uh, as you're going through it, it's not always uh, un- unmitigated uh, blessing. Um, do I have stories I could tell you? Um, but in Psalm 85 we read, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. There's a great verse to be going on with in church history. Um, We want to hear what God will say. We want to hear particularly God's word of peace. And God is promising he'll speak a word of peace. But don't be a bunch of dummies and turn back to folly. And and that's the the sad reality of what we see in uh, uh, church history. The upside for ministers is that it keeps us employed. I sometimes have said there are no ministers in heaven. They're not needed there. Um, We hope to get there, but we'll be called to something else, presumably, uh, once we're there. But but here's the need of the word, that we will hear a word of peace and not turn back to folly. Uh, And so the question comes then, uh, here we are, uh, a reformed church. Um, Regularly at our services, there are television crews to photograph Mike Brown. And... um, no, we're not written up in the paper very often. Um, here are a, a wonderful group of people. Why doesn't everyone want to be here? Why, why, do, why does anybody in a 10-mile radius go anywhere else to church but here? Aren't you amazed? Aren't you surprised? Um, but here we are, a, a, a smallish group. And uh, a question can begin to play on our minds. Uh, Are we the the right ones? Or even if God says we're all right, is the distinctive Christian life we're trying to lead really important in the big scale of things? Does it it really matter? Uh, I always remember... um, I remember very peculiar things. But I always remember uh, Luther, the night before he appeared before the emperor at the Diet of Worms to make his famous Here I Stand speech. Um, He said later that he was haunted by the question that had been put to him, are you alone wise? Are you alone wise? And if we generalize that a little bit, uh, our, our... are reformed Christians the only ones right and everybody else wrong? Now by that, we don't mean that only we are going to heaven. But we invest a lot of time and energy as reformed Christians in, in study, in reflection, in writing up creeds to declare what we believe. Uh, we write books. We we publish magazines, we appear on radio, 
Uh, we're working because we believe that what we believe is what the Lord teaches in his word, and yet in a day like ours, we may be tempted to ask, is it really worth the effort? Uh, is it sufficiently important for us to go on with the fight? Um, I was reading the monthly periodical of a denomination of which I was once part. And um, this denomination just decided to enter into ecclesiastical fellowship with a large denomination full of liberals in Europe. And somebody on the floor of the synod of this denomination asked, is this really a good thing to do? Don't we have an awful lot of doctrinal differences? And the response of one delegate on the floor of synod, yes, but we can cooperate with them in pursuing peace and justice. Well, now, peace and justice are good things. I'm all for peace and justice. I was not aware until that moment that that was the distinctive calling of the church. I thought we were to preach forgiveness and mercy. Would it be more encouraging or less encouraging if the minister stood up on Sunday morning and said, grace, mercy, and justice to you? Uh, Christians should be concerned about justice. Christians should be concerned about peace. The great mission of the church, however, is to preach the gospel. And, and so we're, we're kind of besieged. We're, we're besieged by some people who say, did you see, I think it was in the papers just this week, that a new uh, poll shows that 72% of Americans believe that religion is less influential in American life than it used to be, and that that influence is declining. And, and there are all sorts of things in American life we ought to be concerned about. But our great concern as Christians needs to always be, are we making Jesus known? Are we making his gospel known? Are we making the truth known? And, and to get deflected into other, even other important issues is problematic if the central issue gets neglected. Now, we all have different callings. Some people may be called to be more engaged in justice. I'm not criticizing that at all, but I'm asking, what is the church really about? What is the gospel really about? What, what does Jesus really want his people as the church principally to be doing? And, and the reformers had a really clear answer to that. We need to recapture the gospel. And I think the great question today is, does the world in which we live need the gospel more or less than the 16th century needed it? And, and you know, I don't want to leave the big finish till the end. Uh, I'm convinced we do need the gospel. Uh, the gospel the reformers found in the scriptures as much today as ever. Uh, and I think a case can be made that in point of fact, we live in days remarkably like the days in which the early reformers lived. 
Now, I say that because the early reformers lived in a time in which most people that you met on the street, if you said, are you a Christian, would look at you and say, well, of course. I mean, that's just a dumb question. Reformers lived in Europe. Europeans had been baptized members of the church for centuries. You said, are you a Christian? They'd say, of course I'm a Christian. I think that's true in most places in America today. Not everywhere, but still it's, it's widely true. If you wander around in America and say, are you a Christian? People say, yes. Of course, I'm, I'm not necessarily religious. So we, we live, as the reformers did, in an era where there's a lot of formal commitment, official commitment to Christianity. But there's a lot of lack of clarity about what Christianity is really all about. And, and what the reformers we're so concerned about is we need to be clear about what Christianity is really about. What is the message that Jesus came to bring? And I was trying to think about how we might summarize that to compare the Middle Ages with today and with the Reformation message, and I came up with seven points. If I were a better Calvinist, I'd have whittled it down to five. But, but seven is not a bad kind of number to end up with. Initially, I had six. I was really worried, and I found a seventh. So let me just try rather quickly to go through uh, what I think were, were major issues raised by uh, the Reformers as they looked at the medieval church, look just briefly at the church today, and then talk about the importance of the Reformation answer to say the Reformation still matters, not because it's the Reformation, not because it's 600 or 500 years ago. It's, it still matters because it's God's truth. And whether lots of people accept God's truth or few people accept God's truth or an impossible situation if nobody accepted God's truth, it would still be true. I've said this before, but I, I sometimes get the feeling that there are lots of people in America today who sort of have the attitude, if we would just all agree that hell doesn't exist, it wouldn't exist. Don't talk about hell. That makes it more likely to exist. That, that's a terrible thing. But the truth is, of course, hell either does or doesn't exist, quite apart from whether we believe in it or not. The question is what's true, not what we feel. But that's getting ahead of the game into what we ought to think about. Let me, let's think, first of all, about salvation. What, did, what was the idea of salvation in the Middle Ages? The idea widely held, popularly communicated, was that you have to work really hard and maybe get saved. You have to work really hard and maybe get saved. The best almost anybody can hope for is to get to purgatory, which is a place to suffer and get better so that maybe after hundreds, thousands of years, you may get to heaven. But hardly anybody dying gets to heaven immediately. Not even popes. I mean, even the medieval church said popes don't get there immediately. So you have to work really, really hard. That's the essence of salvation. 
Jesus made salvation possible, but for you to actualize it, you have to be working really, really hard. But what's the attitude towards salvation today in churches? Well, I suspect that in lots of places, not just liberal churches, but in lots of evangelical churches, my sense is, and I, if, I'll talk too long so we won't have time for discussion, but if we could discuss, um, my sense is, I'd be interested in what yours is, there is a subtle universalism, widespread now, not just in liberal churches, but in conservative churches too, we're all going to heaven. Remember R.C. Sproul's famous story when he was talking to his son when he was little. How do you get to heaven, R.C. Jr.? And R.C. Jr. thought a minute, little boy, and he said, you die. And R.C. used to talk about justification by death. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that's a widespread attitude. How do you get to heaven? You die. Everybody's going to heaven. Um, but if, if, if that's not how you get to heaven, isn't it still true that there's an awful lot of attitude around there in conservative Protestant circles? Well, you get to heaven by following Jesus. You get to heaven by doing the right thing. You get to heaven by living the right way. You see, if, to the extent that that's true, we haven't really moved very far from where the Middle Ages was to begin with. Because what the reformers found in the Bible is that you get to heaven by grace alone, by Christ alone, by faith alone. And that's why I think that story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 is so important. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You've got to do everything perfectly to inherit eternal life that way. So salvation is still a critical issue that divides reformed Christianity and not from all other Christians, but as, as the heritage of the Reformation with its clear testimony to the gospel. What about holiness? What, what is the holy life? I fear that in lots of churches, the word holy has become a kind of... If you talk about holiness, you're talking about being proud, aren't you? Aren't Pharisees sort of concerned about holiness? I, I may be wrong. I mean, I live in a cloistered world uh, uh, where I'm, I'm surrounded only by really holy people. So, uh, um, but, but my suspicion is the very word holiness has become a, a kind of funny word. But what the reformers faced is that holiness, by the end of the Middle Ages, had become a whole list of things of human invention. I invent what holiness is. I invent what I think will make God happy with me and make me better. And so the very holiest uh, of, of people in that society were people who became monks and nuns and, and lived lives separated from the world, uh, following all sorts of practices, none of which were in the Bible at all. The family was disparaged. Uh, Jerome sort of set the tone in a way when he said, uh, the only thing good to be said about marriage is it may produce future monks and nuns. That was the attitude. And, and I think we live in a world where holiness has become often a matter of invention. I'm going to do things that make me feel holier. 
Um, we, just, we just live in a world of, of practices that are not in the Bible, but lead people to think they're, they've done something for God, they've done something holy, they've done something that makes them feel holier. Whereas the reformer says, said, you know, we, we have a Bible that tells us what pleases God. We have a Bible that says what a holy life looks like. Um, we don't need to invent a lot of disciplines that God hasn't asked us to undertake, however good they make us feel. Because in point of fact, too often they deflect from the disciplines God would like us to work on. The problem is, of course, God's disciplines are pretty tough. Not to be proud. Come on, that's completely unreasonable. But to wear a hair shirt, that was one of the things they did in the, in the Middle Ages. Shirts made out of hair that itched all the time. So the more uncomfortable you could make yourself, the holier you were becoming. And the fact that you were so uncomfortable with the hair shirt that you kicked your spouse, that didn't matter because you were becoming holy. Uh, so it's, it's human invention versus the law of God when it comes to, to holiness. Worship. Well, that's, that's really good. We've done well with worship, haven't we? You know, in the Middle Ages, worship was a mystery controlled by a cast of priests. It was conducted in a, in a language that most worshipers couldn't understand. And even if the worshipers could understand the language, if it was a big church, they couldn't hear the priest. So it was a mystery what, what was going on. We've gotten away from all that, right? Well, in a way we have, but what was the attraction of that kind of worship? It made you feel close to God. Have you ever, have you ever gone into a Gothic cathedral and felt a religious feeling? Sure, that's what they're designed for, to make you have a religious feeling. And, and what is a lot of contemporary worship all about? I'm not talking about a particular style of worship. I'm talking about what goes on in churches today. What, what is the aim of a lot of that worship? To ha have you have a certain kind of feeling so that you feel close to God, whatever is the reality. Now, we Reformed people have been trying for centuries to stamp all feeling out of worship. You know, and we, we've gotten close at times. Um, but our conviction, of course, is that what worship is really about is not a manufactured feeling, but it's about the Word. It's about drawing close to God through His Word. It's about a conviction that the Holy Spirit uses the Word to connect with us. And, and when the Holy Spirit is present and working through his word, there will be feelings, but feelings aren't the end. They're a byproduct, if you will. 
So when some pathetic old minister is baptizing his grandson and starts weeping, those are, those are genuine feelings. They should be crushed and mortified, but... Um, but you, you don't set out to have a weepy minister. You just get stuck with one. It's a byproduct, you see. And uh, it, it's the word that's central and, and is crucial in worship. What about the church? What is the church? It's very interesting. In the Middle Ages, the church was the pope and the, and the, the, the bishops and the priests. The lay people were completely uninvolved in the definition of the church. The church as an institution were the priests. Well, what is the church today? Again, there's an interesting sort of parallel. Many, many places, the church is the charismatic leader, the guy we all want to follow, uh, the guy who... um, You know, is the one who draws us and keeps us. The guy or the woman, case of Amy Semple McPherson, my friend. Um, So, again, in a sense, the church is the leadership. Instead of the church, as the reformers found it in the scripture, being the body of Christ, the people of God. Now, now the body of Christ, the Bible tells us, has a structure, it has an organization, it has duties, it has responsibilities. It it has an institutional form. But even more fundamental than that, it is the people of God. It It is the family of God. Now, some evangelicals want to have the family with no institution, just as Rome used to want the institution with almost no family. And and the reformers, again, saw the balance of the scriptures, the integrity of the scriptures, and wanted a covenant community, a structured community according to God's revelation and covenant. And for the reformers, this is point five, salvation, holiness, worship, church. Point five is education. Uh, In the Middle Ages, education had come to count for almost nothing. Now, there was education. There were very well-educated people, but education wasn't seen as central to the life of the church. There were many priests who couldn't read, and all they had done was memorize the canon of the Mass and certain liturgical forms. And the reformers came along and said, no, education is crucial because we're a religion of the word. We're a religion of the book. We are a religion that needs to be able to read the book. And the great impetus in the West to universal literacy came from the Protestant reformers who said, everybody should be able to read the book. But they also said that ministers ought to be particularly well-educated in the book. And and in the 16th century already, one of the convictions was ministers ought to be able to read Greek and Hebrew so they can read the book with more care. So that even if you have a really good translation, um, like the ESV that says the disciples rebuked the people, the minister can go back and say, well, actually, it's not what it says. It may be what it means, but it's not what it says. It says they rebuked them. And the 
logical antecedent in the context of them is children. Now, the world doesn't, you know, stop spinning because of that observation, but it's an indication falling. There's a sort of theme here today, falling, falling. Um, uh, there's an indication uh, of, of the importance of drawing as close to the Word of God as you can. That was our conviction, and that education served that end. And, and the sad reality today is that, again, we see in Protestant churches far and wide a very poorly educated clergy. who can't read Greek and Hebrew, uh, and who are not always able to open the Word of God, are not really evaluated by congregations on how well they can open the Word of God and apply the Word of God. They're evaluated on how entertaining they are. Now, we all like entertainment. There's nothing inherently wrong with entertainment. And the old reformed approach to preaching that said the more boring the minister is, the better, that may not be a good thing. Uh, you know, boring is not inherently necessary to being reformed. It's just a frequent byproduct. Um, but, you see, we, ha we have to ask, what, what are our values? What are we after? What does the Word of God uh, teach us? So, um, and then, of course, the great, the great issue of authority. What's the ultimate authority for us? The medieval church had said tradition is our authority. And when the reformers said, well, yeah, but the Bible says holy tradition. Yeah, but the Bible says the church has interpreted the Bible through its holy tradition. The Bible says no images of God. Tradition says it's okay to have images. Now, we're not contradicting the Bible with our tradition. We're supplementing the Bible. The Bible says no images. We have images. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? No, you don't understand. Let me explain theologically why it's fine to have images when the Bible says no images. Let me explain theologically to you that although the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, Mary's also a co-mediatrix with Christ between man and God. Let me explain that to you. Well, you have to do a lot of explaining. You know, only a theologian could explain that to you. Um, tradition is the authority. Bible's the authority. What's the authority for most Protestants today, do you think? Culture? Feelings? What resonates with me? Well, that's your interpretation. That makes me so upset. That's my interpretation? Well, I, I guess in one sense it's my interpretation, but what is the, you know, have you no interest in what the Bible actually says? And, and the sad truth, it really seems to me there are a lot of people who aren't all that interested in what the Bible actually says. Uh, so authority is an issue. Um, and then finally, cultural influence. What, what is the church's relationship to culture? Now, this is a, an ages-old, huge topic, and I will explain it in 30 seconds. Um, what, what are we after? Well, in the Middle Ages, the millennium had arrived. 
Everybody was a member of the church, just about. The church was rich. The church was influential. Politicians trembled when the church spoke. Almost heaven, right? What, what, what could be better? But at the same time that the church had all this influence, all of this power, all of this wealth, it was profoundly corrupt in its teaching, in its holiness, in its notion of how to use that power. And the reformers came along and said, the great calling of the church is not to be a cultural power. The great calling of the church is to preach the gospel. Now when the church fulfills its great calling, there may be cultural benefits to that. There may be cultural fruit to that. And that's a great thing. We should rejoice when a culture shows some fruits of the truth of God within it. But the fundamental truth is that the church has been able to survive in any culture and ought to survive in any culture. The church ought to be the faithful church of Jesus Christ where it's a majority or where it's a tiny minority. It ought to be able to be faithful where it has great honor and influence and where it's severely persecuted. Uh, and, the, and the tragedy today is, it seems to me, that way too many Christians are more interested in how we can be a cultural influence than are interested in trying to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out. What time are we supposed to be done? Five minutes ago? Oh, 12. Oh. I mean, I, I maybe have used this uh, illustration before with some of you, but you know, a number of years ago, there was a big rally at Qualcomm against gay marriage. And this was promoted in the Christian churches. And part of my reaction to that was, wouldn't we have a lot more credibility as Christians if we'd had a great rally at Qualcomm first opposing unbiblical divorce? A sin which would tempt many more of us than gay marriage tempts us. Isn't there something unseemly about being really angry against sins to which we're not tempted. And yet seeing, being willing to give sins to which we are tempted kind of a pass. I think that's a corruption in the life of the church. It's not a failure to be influential. It's a failure of integrity, it seems to me. It's a, it's a failure to prioritize. It's, it's a failure to begin with the household of faith. And Anyway, I think we live in a mess today. And, and we are the inheritors of great insight, great blessing, great times of blessing. And it's understandable that Christians are very frustrated in America today because uh, we look back on the history of America and see so much Christian influence and 
uh, some of it for the good, some of it not so good. But the frustration we're feeling today is we're losing control. I think that's what frustrates a lot of Americans today. We're losing control. The president always, doesn't always say, God bless America. We're losing control. Um, and, and I think we're way too willing to look at very superficial, superficial issues. The biggest problem in America today is not the culture, it's the church. And it's that the church is not taking the Bible, the message of salvation uh, the law of God, seriously enough. And I think that's the great calling of Reformed Christians. Not because we're better or because we're wiser or even that we always understand the Bible better than everybody else, but it's because our witness in the world should be we are trying to take Christ at his word. We're trying to find the true gospel. We're trying to build the true church. Uh, we're trying to understand the true law of God. And um, we don't know what the Lord will do with that. He may gather a few dozen. He may gather a few hundred. Or the day may yet come again where he gathers thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. Um, I'm always intrigued about who's going to be in heaven when we get there. I'm intrigued by what we forget about history, and I'm speaking as a historian. you, You remember, don't you, that Egypt was once a Christian country. The majority of Egyptians were Christians for several hundred years. And then in about the middle of the 7th century, about 640, the forces of Islam conquered Egypt. And still, for another 350 years, the majority of Egyptians were Christians. I mean, formally Christians, baptized Christians. Only about the year 1000 did the majority of the Egyptian population become Muslims. What intrigues me is that when Islam conquered Egypt in about 640, the Egyptian population was about 8 million people. Today, I think the Egyptian population is about 80 million people. But do you know how many Christians there are in Egypt today? 8 million people. Isn't that sort of staggering? I don't know if they're all regenerate. You know, I, I don't know the exact state of their, of their souls. But, but what an interesting testimony God has maintained in a part of the world that we think of as non-Christian, anti-Christian, post-Christian, whatever. God is full of surprises in the things that he does. And, and I think what's crucial for us that, is that we sustain a confidence that the little work we're trying to do, that sometimes seems not to have a lot of fruit, is is doing exactly what Christ called us to do, and that was to hold up a light in a dark world. He has to determine who will come to the light. 
you know, this is the 450th anniversary year of John Calvin's death. Everybody paid a lot of attention five years ago for the 500th anniversary of his birth. His death is going slightly less marked. He had a short life, only five years. Uh, for the mathematically challenged like me. But he, he wrote something really intriguing in his introduction to his commentary on, on Hebrews because he, he didn't feel he lived in a golden age. He wrote, anyone who takes it on himself to forward the doctrine of salvation and the safety of the church must be armed with unconquerable perseverance. But since this is a matter beyond our strength, God will supply us with heavenly weapons. Meantime, it is our duty to have written on our hearts the promises which occur throughout Scripture, that as the Lord has laid the foundations of the church with his own hand, so he will not allow it to remain derelict without being concerned for repairing and restoring its ruins. In so saying, he promises that he will never fail us in this work. But this one thing is abundantly sufficient to encourage us in that we have a leader so invincible that the more battles he fights, the more triumphs and victories he gains. It's Christ who's the leader and builder of the church. And our job is to be as faithful as we can and pray that we might be privileged to live in days of great blessing and be used to see many come to the faith. Uh, but if that's not God's will, to still remain faithful. Well, that leaves us two minutes for discussion. Um, I always try to avoid discussion because people ask questions I can't answer. Um, any questions, observations? Ryan, do you have two minutes worth to say something useful? Okay, let's close in prayer together. Father, we are thankful for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are thankful for your word and the clarity and helpfulness and blessedness that it brings into our lives. And we acknowledge, O oh Lord, we are not strong and we are not wise. And um, our, our desire is not that we or our little movement should be glorified, but our great desire is that Christ might be honored according to his word. And we pray that you will find ways to use us to help make that happen, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.